Good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be with you today, and uh, I'm so grateful to God that I get to be a pastor at this church, that I get to stand before you today and deliver a message on one of the most uh, profound pieces of literature, the most profound piece of literature, and really one of the mountain points of of the New Testament is uh, the 17th chapter of John. So if you're with us today, I welcome you to, to our journey through the Gospel of John. We started in the fall of 19, <laughs> and we're on chapter 17. And we're, uh, we're going to just continue verse by verse through the Gospel of John. I encourage you to, uh, to join us, to, to jump back on our website or YouTube page to view former messages. But today we come to uh, what is commonly known as the high priestly prayer. It's this very powerful prayer that Jesus prays. On the night that he is betrayed, just hours before he's arrested and taken to the cross, all the Gospels uh, uh, reflect that Jesus prayed. Uh, But here, John, as an eyewitness who was there through the power of the Holy Spirit, recalls the prayer. And it is uh, profound. It's holy ground, quite frankly. Many pastors, uh, many theologians and writers dare not even approach it, lest we muddle it up. Uh, It speaks for itself. It reveals the intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. It is a very different prayer. It's a prayer that only Jesus could pray, and I'll show you why later today. He taught us a prayer that we can pray, that all believers can pray, but none of us could pray this one. It's uniquely his. It shows us uh, things that up to now we didn't know. We, We wouldn't be able to see. And so I would encourage you, if you're going to read the 17th chapter of John, if you're going to come and take in uh, this powerful prayer, come with humility. Come with an open heart and mind. Come in awe and reverence of the Son of God on this dark hour and and keep him in your mind's eye. Uh, This is not just uh, some formal thing. This is the desperate plea of a son to his father. Uh, It is a desperate plea of intercession for you and for me. It's a consecration and a moment of freedom to go forward to the cross. It's very, very powerful. Now, as we look at uh, the 17th chapter and this prayer, which is the whole 17th chapter, it really falls into three sections. Verses 1 through 5 is Jesus praying for himself. Then he turns his attention to his disciples who are there with him. And that's uh, verses 6 through 19. And then verses 20 through 26, Jesus turns his attention to us, to his church, to those who will believe in him down the road. And so we'll look at these three sections. Today we're going to begin looking just at the first five verses as Jesus prays for himself. So if you would, please stand and let's, uh, let's read the word of the Lord together. The words will be on the screen. It's our tradition to read the word of God out loud. So please join us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence 
with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thank you. Please be seated. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would now send, as you already have in this time of worship, but just now send the Holy Spirit to lead us into all the truth. This was your promise to your church that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal the deep mysteries of God, the deep mysteries of the gospel. And then, Lord, I pray that you would apply this powerful mystery of the gospel to those things that we brought in with us here today. Many of us come here with great need, with confusion, with doubt, with anger and resentment, with hurt. And so I pray that as we look at you, as you raise your eyes to the heavens, that we would find great hope, encouragement, and the equipping to step into our life and into what awaits us on the other side of those doors. That we would seek your glory and be the light of Christ in this hurting culture. And I pray this in Jesus' name. The church said, amen. So the title of my message today is, This is Eternal Life, uh, because Jesus actually defines that for us. And uh, it falls into three subheadings, the petition, the purpose, and the grounds. First, the petition. So John begins as an eyewitness. He recalls that after Jesus said these things, when he had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father. Uh, You've probably seen paintings of this moment. There's great art. I should have put some up there. I apologize for not doing that. Uh, Of just of Jesus raising his eyes to the heavens. And... uh, If you can picture that, I would ask you to do that. If you can picture Jesus with his eyes raised to the heavens. John says when he had spoken these things, he's he's talking about the farewell discourse. He had just been teaching ever since dinner time, then their long walk to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been equipping them, preparing them for his departure. He's been encouraging them, trying to make sure they don't lose heart, promising them the Holy Spirit. But here at the very end, the last kind of things that he just said is that all of you will abandon me. My best friends, you will all be scattered to your own home, and I will be alone. His hour has come. There comes a time for all men and women when no comfort on planet Earth is to be found. This is your hour. We will all experience such an hour. A time of such extreme agony when no earthly words of assurance, no half hearted promises, no medicines, and no philosophies will minister to the trial before us. It is just that hour for Jesus of Nazareth. Before him lies the deceit of evil men who will accuse him, abuse him, and finally nail him to the tree. It is an hour he has long anticipated, yet it is an hour that he must enter into freely, It's his choice. It is a horrific choice. It is a choice that defies all natural impulse of self-preservation. Great courage will be required. 
conviction. Uh, a steadfastness to see it through. Only God can provide this wholehearted conviction and consecration. And so our Lord lifts his eyes to heaven. Listen, when your hour comes, and for some of you, your hour, you have been through a time like this. When that time comes, looking around, looking down, or even looking inward will not help Look to the Son of Man who at his hour raises his eyes to the heavens from whence our, you know, from whence our help comes, right? This is the first and important lesson that we can learn before he even says a word. He looks to God. Church, look to God in your hour. Let us also note the intimacy of this moment. The intimacy of our Lord's address as he looks to the heavens and he says, Father. In the Greek, the word is pater. Uh, Jesus did not likely speak Greek. He likely spoke Aramaic. In the Aramaic, the word would have been Abba. Uh, It it was the word that little children in the Middle Eastern world would use for their daddies, their papa, Abba. Uh, It's not a formal word. It's an informal, uh, very casual address. The Greek word pater would have been the Greek translation of Abba, but pater itself can mean just father in a more formal sense, or it certainly could mean Daddy, regardless of whether it's daddy or father, let me tell you something. Nobody in the ancient world would have thought to address God that way. Nobody in the Jewish world would have ever thought to address God as papa or daddy or father. You pray to father all the time. You think of God as father. There's only one reason why you do that, and it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And this was one of the main objectives of his incarnation is that he would come and reveal the very nature of God to us, that we'd understand God for who he is. And not only does Jesus pray to God as father, but he says to you, if you're a disciple of his, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that when you pray, when you pray, when I pray, we should pray to God saying, our father. That is mind-blowing. And I hope that you can appreciate that it's only because of Jesus that millions of people today will gather in every tribe, tongue, and nation and pray, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, Let us now look to the petition because Jesus actually prays for something. He asked for something, and here's what he prays for. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. This is the petition. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Now, this is interesting. How many of you, when you talk to your mom or your dad, you refer to yourself in the third person? Right? Mother, feed your son. Right? Uh, No, we don't really refer to ourselves in the third person. So why does Jesus, who starts with a very intimate personal address to the father then say the hours come glorify your son and speak to and refer to himself in the third person i think it's significant uh, that jesus poses this petition in formal language because it helps the disciples and us today to understand that there is a plan here and jesus is calling the father to initiate the next part of the plan why because the hours come do you see it 
This hour is not a surprise. This was part of God's plan of salvation. From the moment of the fall in Genesis 3, there was a plan. And everything in the Old Testament is pointing to the fulfillment of the plan. And the fulfillment of the plan is going to be Jesus. But it's going to come to an hour. This is why all through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Now my hour has come. Glorify your Son. Glorify the Son. The role. This is essential. This is how the plan is going to succeed. The Son now must be glorified. So how is the Father going to glorify the Son? We already know the answer to that question. Jesus has already told us. Look at John 12, 27 following. Jesus said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered, listen, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. How is the father going to glorify the son? He's going to put him on a cross. My son Jonah was just standing on this stage. I would never glorify my son by putting him on a cross for you. I love you, but I don't love you that much. I could never do it. I could never give my beautiful son to a cross for any of you. But this is the plan, that the father who loves his son would give his son over to a cross, that this would be his glory. Now that, you're so used to that idea, you wear a cross around your neck, you have crosses hanging in your house, there's a big, beautiful gold cross right there. We all have this rosy picture of a cross. Well, let me just tell you, when John wrote these words into his gospel, and he's quoting Jesus from 30-something A.D., and he's writing his gospel in 80-something, 70, 80-whatever A.D., and then, you know, this begins distributing in the ancient world. Let me just tell you something about a cross. There was no glory attached to a cross. None. The cross was an object of shame. It was an object of complete dominance by the Roman Empire. It was a, a, a source of torture and death, a humiliating death, a death where you were stripped naked, pounded with nails or ropes, with, and, and then you got basically eaten alive by birds as you hung there until you suffocated to death. That's what a cross was. But Jesus just said, glorify your son. He said in John 12, when I am lifted up, on the cross, I will draw all men to myself. Church, what do you think of when you see a cross? Is it not the glory of the sun? Is that not what the whole world knows when they see a cross? It's the most universally recognized symbol on the planet. How did he know? If not, that he is the son of God. His glory is the cross. And the glory of the cross draws all men to himself. That's what he said would happen. That's exactly what we know. That's why we're all here, right? That's why billions of people will gather this day in his name.
because of the cross, the glory of the cross. Now, that's the petition. Glorify your son. Now let's look to the purpose. If you know Jesus, if you've been tracking with Jesus through the Gospels, you know he's not a glory hound. He doesn't ever really, you know, do anything to glorify himself. He's constantly pointing to the glory of the Father. He's a very modest, humble person, right? So it seems like a weird thing for him to say, glorify your son. We now know he's pointing to the cross. But what's the purpose of this petition? It follows immediately. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There's so much here. Listen, the glorification of Jesus is to one end and one end only, and that is to glorify the Father. Now, you're like, that's a lot of glory. Well, if you, if you think about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we, this is such a mystery. It's hard for us to articulate, right? It's, it's one God and three persons, three unique persons who are so devoted to the glory of the other that they accomplish and exist in perfect oneness. Jesus never works towards his own glory. He always works to the glory of the Father. The Father always glorifies the Son. The Holy Spirit always bears witness to and brings glory to the Father and the Son, even as the Son glorifies the Spirit. It's this constant giving glory to one another. That's what perfect community looks like. Perfect community in your marriage, perfect community in your family, is that we give glory to one another, not that we kind of, you know, kind of like become glory hogs, always like, it's all about me. That's why our culture is just so backwards. Our culture is like, it's all about me. It is not. It's never about you. It's glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Holy Spirit. And then we get invited into that glory. I'll be back in a minute on that. But listen to what he says. This is so important. He just revealed something that's incredibly important. Jesus just revealed that he has been given authority over all flesh. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to whom you have given him. This is an arrangement that we were not prior to now fully aware of. This is the intimacy that Jesus has in this prayer that he's revealing some things. Here's what he just said. You have given authority to me over all flesh. Now that makes sense of things that we've seen in the gospel. Jesus healed the sick. He cast out demons. He made the blind to see. He made the deaf to walk. He raised people from the dead. He calmed the storm of the sea with his hand. He had an authority that was unlike anybody who has ever lived. He just revealed what happened there. The Father had given the Son authority over all flesh. A lot of you are thinking, yeah, I'd love to have that kind of authority. Sure you would. And what would you do with it? You would serve yourself. Or you would serve your own. Jesus has had this authority. He's used it only for the glory of God. He's used it only as God has directed him. That this arrangement creates tension because in a few minutes, the one who has authority over all flesh is going to submit himself to the authority of evil men. He's going to submit himself under the authority of Pontius Pilate and it will lead to his death on a cross. 
Now, why? Why would the Son of God with all authority allow himself to be brutally abused and even crucified when he has authority over all flesh? Here's the reason, and it's right here in the text, verse 2, to give eternal life. This is part of the plan. You see, if Jesus is a victim, if he's just a victim of wrongdoing, if he was just powerless and, and this, these overpowering, you know, people, the Jewish authorities and the Romans, like if he was just a victim of wrongdoing and evil, then he's not our savior. He's just a victim. And, and we're, we feel bad for him, right? Because there have been a lot of victims in the world of people who are powerless and bad things happen to them. But Jesus, even though he identifies with us, he takes on our flesh and our weaknesses and overcomes all those kind of things. He has authority over all flesh. He's not a victim. He is the king. And he has laid down his authority to an end, which is to give eternal life. He laid it down. This is why Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I lay it down and I can take it back up. Because why? Because I have authority over all flesh. We, now we know. That's the deal. That's the arrangement that he said. I hope you see this. A, a man who raises his eyes to heaven in the darkest hour of his life, all of his friends are going to abandon him. He is going to lay down his life. He's going to submit to these crazy evil people who are going to whip him and torture him and mock him and spit at him and put him on a cross. And all the time, all he even has to do is snap his fingers and legions of angels come to wipe them all out. See, it's one thing to be a victim and know that you have no power and that you're just going to be, you know, flogged and starving across and it's unjust, it's horrible, it's terrible. But it's another thing to know that you don't ever have to suffer any of it. But you choose to. Out of love for people who currently hate you. This is Jesus, our Lord. Can you see him? This is incredibly powerful and important <laughs> to give eternal life. Now, will all souls respond to the glory of the Son who lays down his authority and submits to evil men in order to save us all? That, that would, you know, when we see Jesus Christ glorified on the cross, will all men respond to that? Sadly, no. Jesus states in verse 2, to give eternal life to all you have given the Son. Though Jesus has authority over all flesh, not all flesh will respond with repentance and faith. Only those given to the Son by the Father will be saved. This is hard. Uh, New Testament scholar Bruce Milne captures this. He says, Christ has authority to give life to all. But due to human unbelief, not all will receive this life. Those who do know that its source lies not in themselves, but in the action of God upon them. They are the gift of the Father to the Son. In contrast between all people and all those you have given him is expressed the inevitable tragedy of the mercy of God. It is offered to all, but received by the few, and these the elect. This is a very hard mystery for us. That Jesus would die for all, that the grace and mercy of God would be given for the world through the Son, Jesus Christ. That as Jesus talked about in John 10, my sheep will hear my voice. That there is this sense of those that the Father gives to the Son. We, in the Reformed tradition, call this the elect. We just 
We just kneel and bow to the sovereignty of God's saving work, knowing that we are powerless to save ourselves, that all of us who have been saved could never look backwards and say, yeah, I did that. I chose Jesus. I made a really good decision here, and that's why I'm going to heaven. God forbid, if that thought ever comes into your mind, just you know, rebuke Satan and fall on your knees and beg for God's mercy, because it's not true. There is not one of us who could ever say, I did that. I had any role in my own salvation. God pursued each and every one of you. God pursued me. Thanks be to God that when he called, we heard. And let us give God even the credit for that. Amen. This is what Jesus is saying. It's a very hard doctrine. But he just said, for those you have given the son. Now, what is it that they receive? They receive eternal life. Jesus states in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. <laughs> if I were to ask you, what is eternal life? What would you say? You know, most of it would be like, well, it's life that never ends. Don't ever say that to an eight-year-old boy. My son Caleb was horrified at the thought of heaven when he was a little boy. He'd be like, that's a really long time. See, when you're eight, like the greatest fear you have is being bored for a really long time, right? <laughs> and this is very true. Kids freak out. Even they, you know, they freak out even about heaven because it's just like, that's a long time. What are we going to do, right? So, you know, when you just focus on quantity of life, that's a reasonable question if the quality of the life is not something that's just as exciting or, or more so, right? So uh, here, it's interesting, Jesus... When he talks about the eternal life, he doesn't actually talk about quantity at all. He talks about quality. And this is eternal life. That they would know the Father as the one true God. And they would know the Son, Jesus Christ. He refers to himself again in the third person because of the role. He is the Messiah. That they would know the one who came for them the king of Israel, the champion who takes the cross on their behalf. This is the eternal life. This is actually a fulfillment of prophecy, Jeremiah 31, 34. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This became the end, the goal, the, the greatest, highest, noble good in the apostle Paul's life as he rotted away in prison he writes, you know, to the church in, in Philippi, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing God, knowing the Son is at the foundation of the true life, the eternal kind of life, a life without end with no tears, no pain, no hurry, no regret, a life of the purest love that ever was or ever will be. This is the life you've always wanted. This is the life you were created for. It's been frustrated by sin. But when we receive eternal life, we are entering into knowing God, knowing the Father, knowing His Son, Jesus Christ. It's the eternal kind of life. Bruce Milner writes, to speak of knowing God as the supreme purpose of existence, as Jesus does here, does not imply a flight from the world into some super material order. But the world in and of itself cannot satisfy us. How many of you know that is true? The world in and of itself cannot 
satisfy us. It just can't. That's why you're constantly dissatisfied. That's why your spirit is always in a state of unrest. This world cannot satisfy your soul. He goes on to say, that was never the intention. Beyond the world, we seek the world's Lord, the ever-living God of glory, grace and majesty, Father, Son, and Spirit. Eternity will bring the deepening of our knowledge through ever richer appreciation of Him who is without end. To receive eternal life is not the end of our journey. In the deepest sense, it is only the beginning. You know, I read a lot this week in preparation for this message, but when I read this, I teared up because I don't know how many of you know this, but it's really been like a very hard season around here. We've, we've lost a lot of people, a lot of wonderfully amazing, faithful saints of our church, many families. This has been a season of grieving due to COVID or other reasons. But when I read this quote, that the eternal life is not the end of the journey, but in every sense of the word, it is the beginning. I just said, praise God. Our loved ones in the faith who go on to be with the Lord, it is the beginning of their journey. In essence, of knowing the Father, of knowing Jesus Christ in a way that's unfettered, that where our faith become our eyes, right? It's a great hymn goes. Take heart, church. Those who have gone on are just beginning the greatest adventure. And soon, very soon, we will be with them. Uh, there's hope here. This is the eternal life as Jesus presents it. All right. Now, when we think of knowing something or someone, we often associate knowing with the accumulation of accurate knowledge, right? So if I'm going to know uh, theology, I need, I need to study and accrue knowledge. If I'm going to know science or medicine or mathematics, and that's not wrong. Accurate thinking is super important uh, in our life. A.W. Tozer, we've quoted him many times. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know what? The vast majority of people in this world walk around with very wrong thoughts about God. If, and perhaps you, you might be here to say, well, I don't believe in God at all. Well, that affects you, right? What do you live for? What do you die for? How do you account for the universe? How do you account for thumbs? How do you account for eyes? Why are you personal versus impersonal? Why are you a moral creature? Why does morality matter at all? There's all kinds of big problems that come with being an atheist. There's all kinds of big problems that come with being uh, somebody who believes that there's, you know, three billion gods and, and that there's a God in every cow and there's a God in every tree and there's a God in the sun and a God in the stars. And here's the deal. You travel all over the world and you will find millions of people who live in fear of the gods. They have very weird, very, very intense ideas about the gods and they are tortured by the gods as they perceive them. You know, the vast majority of people in the tribal world believe that their loved ones go on to haunt them, especially the mean ones. And so they need a meaner God to scare away their mean uncle who's going to come after them once he dies. This is everywhere in the world. It's called just traditional religions. It's very, very common. So imagine, imagine the liberty when the gospel makes it into that group of people and they understand there's only one God, creator of heaven and earth. And this God so loved the world 
that he gave his son to atone for our sin that we might be reconciled to God and receive eternal life. It is unbelievably powerful, liberating. It's a source of great joy. It is, it is emancipation from slavery of wrong thinking about God. Hugely important. Now, there's more to knowing God and knowing the Son than just accurate information and accumulation of knowledge that right thinking about God. How many of you know what the word know means in the Old Testament? Let me just give you an example. Genesis 4.2. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That's a different kind of knowing. Am I right? What did, what, what, what did, Adam knew his wife? They use that word knowing for sexual intimacy between a husband and wife? Yes, they do. There's nothing more intimate that two people can do than this act of knowing in marriage. And it's not just the physical act, it's the emotional, mental, social, physical, holistic oneness that is shared between a husband and wife. Now that intimacy is implied in what Jesus just said, that they would know the Father, the one true God, and know His Son, Jesus. It's not just head knowledge. It's union. It's oneness. I mean, consider what Jesus said in John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. That's oneness. That's family. The, the whole picture uh, uh, is that we are adopted into his family, that he brings us close, that we enter into the fellowship of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This constant giving glory one to another, we're included in that family. It's way more than just accurate knowledge. It's, it's union, it's oneness. And we only experience that at best in part in this life, but it is the eternal life that we would have oneness with the Father and Jesus Christ. That's how intimate our relationship will be as we enter into that place. It's a profound concept. But this is the language. John 15, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. Abide in my love. It's the language of oneness. So this is uh, more than just a transforming of the mind. Uh, we're going to come back to the oneness. It's a big theme in the prayer of Jesus. Let us now return to the Lord's Prayer to the Father and just acknowledge before we jump to the end, come back here to this moment, this dark night, eyes to the heaven. He's pleading to the Father. He has the vision of eternal life, of the glory of his cross. But the cross is still an if. It's not a foregone conclusion. He still has to choose. He's still praying. Glorify your son. He's going to come back to the petition. So we have the petition. We have the purpose, which is eternal life that will bring glory to God. Now let's look, number three, to the grounds. Uh, Jesus already revealed the plan, right? There's the hour. The son needs to be glorified. This is the plan for redeeming the sinful world back to God. And clearly this plan required Jesus to leave his prior glory with the father to empty himself taking on flesh, humbling himself like a servant, and then to live as a human representative 
This is the plan. A son of Adam, right? That he would be the human representative who would be subject to all the trials, temptations, and pains of life on planet Earth. And furthermore, Jesus himself stated early on in his ministry in Matthew 5, I have not come to abolish the law, but to what? To fulfill the law. Which is to say, Jesus of Nazareth came into the world as a human representative, and he has to get it perfectly right. He cannot sin one time. Uh, the most noble of men or women who sinned even once would be deserving of death. Paul says in Romans 6, the consequence of sin is death. That's how far apart God's holiness is from human sinfulness. It's, it's an immeasurable gap. One sin would require death. Jesus now comes as the human representative, leaving his glory, taking on flesh, living in our world with all of its temptations, <laughs> with all of its craziness, with all of its offense. And he has to get it perfectly right or the plan doesn't work. Such is why Jesus now presents the grounds for his petition. He says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Remember last week he said, I've overcome the world. This is what he's saying. I have overcome every temptation. I have overcome every fear, every threat. I have glorified you. How does a kid glorify a parent? Do what I tell you. Right? Just follow directions. Just, would you please, please just honor me and do what I've asked you to do? When one is in authority and one is in submission, the way you bring glory to the one in authority is you do what they ask. This is what he's saying. I glorified you on earth. I accomplished everything you set before me to do. Jesus has never, for one minute, for one second in his life, done anything just for him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going through your whole life and you never do one thing for you, not one selfish act? He never strayed from the plan. He never made it up as he went. He never just said, hey, I don't actually think your plan's all that good. Let me try this. Not once. He was completely obedient. This, so you go back to Philippians 2 in the great early Christian hymn that though being in the very nature of God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he became obedient obedient even unto death on a cross. This is why God has glorified him and given him a name that is above all names, because he did it, and only he could do it. And so based on this grounds of his own merit, of what he accomplished, he comes back and repeats the, the petition, but this time not in third-person language, but in personal, first-person language. He says, and now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is a different request for glory. The first one is glorify the Son on the cross, but now he is looking beyond the cross to going home. Do you see that? 
Now I'm looking to returning to you, to the glory that I had before the world existed. Uh, he is modeling right now what the Apostle Paul so beautifully articulates in 2 Corinthians 4.18 when he writes, We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Go back to the garden. See Jesus in this place. It's dark. There's no street lights. They're out in this garden working towards the garden where they would spend the night. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows all of his friends are going to flee and abandon him. Everything on planet Earth right now looks dark. That's all he can see. So he lifts his eyes to heaven and he fixes his eyes on the unseen, on the glory that awaits him, that he would endure and persevere, that he would go to the cross, that he would not ever give up and just wipe everybody out or, or turn tail and run. He could have done anything. He had choices, but he fixes his eyes on the unseen. And it helps him get through to the end. We'll see that as we go. But I just want to land here for a second and bring you back to your hour. Jesus has modeled for us. In, in addition to revealing the deep mysteries of the kingdom of God, he's modeled for us that when you get to a place in your life, and you will, where everything looks dark around you, where everything looks generally hopeless, where like, you just can't imagine one more thing going wrong, one more blow, one more loss. Some of you are there right now. I have walked through with several of you through times like this in your life. What do we do? We do what Jesus did. We look to the unseen instead of the seen. And we pray to the Father and we commit ourselves to his glory and we submit ourselves to his plan. Now I want you to know, I've seen you do this, church. I've been your pastor for over 13 years, 13 and a half years. I've seen you do it time and time again. I've stood on this stage when we've been doing funerals for your children, for your loved ones. And I've sat in your living rooms and in tears you said, we just want to bring glory to God. I've seen you keep your eyes focused on the Father and on the unseen. And I've seen the strength of the Holy Spirit as you have borne witness and you've given glory to God in the dark hour of your soul. And it is compelling. Other people see that. It is you being the light of Christ in a hurting culture when it matters the most. See, I'm going to know what you actually believe when you've lost everything, when everything else looks dark. But so many in this church have taken this example to heart. And in your hour, you have looked to the heavens and you have given glory to God and you have submitted yourself to his plan and trusted him when everything just looks so bleak and hopeless. We would never know to do that if not for this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth and his example, and I thank God for that. This is what compelled the writer of Hebrews to, to write, and I'll just close with this, Hebrews 12. He says, therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let that be a word of encouragement for you. Whatever you face as you walk out of these doors, finish the race that was set before you. Endure to the end. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus who went before us. You can follow his example. The only thing you cannot do, please do not do this. You can't pray this prayer because you may never, ever stand before God and plead your own merit. Please don't do that. You know, please, please don't go to God and say, I have been so good. I have done so many good things. Bring me some glory. Bad idea. <laughs> All right? Billy Graham wouldn't do that. There was no Christian leader anywhere in the world who would ever think to stand before God and say, I've led so many people to the Lord. I, I, I've planted so many churches. I've been such a good Christian. Bring me glory. Don't ever do that. You have no merit. God owes you nothing. Set aside every ounce of entitlement and just flesh it before you stand before God. God gave you life. God gave you everything that is good in your world. And we have been sinful. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. When we approach God, this is why Jesus said, from now on in that time, pray in my name. When we approach God now, even in the darkest hour, we plead the merits of the Son who did it right on our behalf. Amen? Can you see him? Church, do you love Jesus? I do too. Let's pray. As we close our service, Lord, I just pray that we would see you. We would see your eyes as you look to heaven, as you pray to the Father, as you muster up the courage to step into your faith, as you can condescend with such humility to lay down your authority over all flesh, that you would do that for us, that you would do that for me. And as Paul writes in Romans 5, 8, that you would do that while we were your, your enemies, while we were yet sinners, while, while we sat there and participated in our own sin and nailing you to the cross, that you would lay down your authority over all flesh that we might be forgiven, that I might receive this eternal life, that I might actually know the Father and know you and be welcomed into your family. We behold this moment in awe that you would do this for us, that this was the plan, that it was that costly And I pray that we would leave this room today with gratitude for the cross. That it would change us. That it would become our identity. That this would be what we lead with. I have been forgiven by Jesus because God so loved the world. Glory to God. Glory to the Son. And gratitude in our hearts. And that that would be our testimony even in our when the darkness 
is all we can see. Help us fix our eyes on you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.